0: Hello and welcome to The Walk Podcast. My name is Anna Hamill, Senior Editor for Brands at Walk. It's day two of our three-part podcast series in partnership with the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, the IPA, to bring you some of the key highlights from the F-Work events in London. I'll be speaking to marketing effectiveness legends, Les Binette and Field. They'll be discussing the state of the industry 10 years on from their groundbreaking research and debunking some of the common misconceptions of their work, as well as where the conversation about effectiveness is going next. Later in today's episode, Fiona Blades, who is President and Chief Experience Officer at Mesh Experience, will explain the importance of owned media channels in the marketing mix. And lastly, I'll be joined by Pavan Morales, who is Strategy Director at Unilever, and Neelam Itadaria, Global Product Director at the GOAT Agency, and we're going to be talking about all things retail media, social commerce, and influences. Our first guests today are effectiveness experts and advertising's most famous double act, Les Burnett and Peter Field. Welcome to The Walk Podcast. Hi. Hi there. It's been 10 years since the long and short of it came out, and marketing has changed in many, many, many ways since then. But that tension still exists between short-term response marketing and long-term brand building. It's still a hot topic of conversation in the industry today. How have you seen the impact of that really important research play out in the last few years?
1: Well, I think it's quite gratifying that um, some people have read the book. Uh, And people talk about it and some people have put it into action, put the ideas into action. And increasingly we're seeing a little sort of a drip of stories of people getting good business results.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think those who've really run with it have had great success. And there's lots of case studies now where that's happened. For a lot of businesses, it remains an ambition, but at least moving in the right direction they are they're aware of uh, you know our kind of key findings about balancing long and short and they're trying to do something about it and that's got to be a good thing.
0: Tell me a couple of those real life examples of how brands have applied the principles of that work and and found success with it I,
1: I actually had an example um just yesterday, so uh, uh, somebody who I met uh, last week said we've been applying your principles. Uh, for about the last three, four, five years. Um, Two key things they did really were um, they used share of voice as a budgeting principle. So setting their share of voice above their market share and they shifted towards more of a 60-40 balance between brand and activation. And they've been rewarded with uh, new growth in market share um, and less reliance on promotions. So it's a Classic example of doing something fairly simple based on what we recommend, but getting success.
0: Yeah. So those principles are still enduring in the many years since oh, the release no, of that no report. question.
2: There isn't, I mean, you know, we, we monitor the data and the 60-40 rule as an average is still alive and well and very strong. There's no, no evidence that that's weakening. I mean, what we do know is, is like all averages, there are different situations and different sweet spots. Um, so we've never said it was a one size fits all kind of rule, um, but it's just a guiding principle. And as that, I think it's just as valuable as it ever has been, if not more.
0: The world of marketing effectiveness has a lot of different schools of thought. It has a lot of hot debate. How does your work align with the theories of others in the industry and how does it diverge? And how can marketers get the best of both worlds between your work, for example, and the work of, say, Ehrenberg Bass Institute or some of the really exciting other marketing effectiveness work in the market right now?
1: I think we uh, fully endorse pretty much everything Ehrenberg Bass say. Um, I think it's kind of... um, built into a lot of what we say. Um, We add some bells and whistles on top of what they do, um, but I don't see any conflict between our work and Ehrenberg Bass. I think where we would be, um, the the people that we're we're least in sympathy with would be some of the digital marketers who think it's all about short-term performance, growth hacking type stuff.
0: So, and that's something that we've definitely seen with, you know, increased media yeah. investment into performance marketing, especially as these digital channels.
2: And it's, and it's happening now. And, you know, I mean, I think what we, what we see our role as is to make sense of these two different world, worlds. as the performance marketing world, which we know, particularly for startups, is a great way of driving growth in the early years. But we also see the Ehrenberg-Bass view of the world, which is that it's all about the brand mental availability. Um, and that is a truth as well at a different stage in a brand's life. Um, what we've tried to do is to pull those two together in a bigger view of, you know, truth uh, that, that covers everything, a theory of everything if you like. <laughs>
0: yeah, one of Modestly. the things one of the things you spoke about on stage was creating that theory of everything and and what do you mean by that?
2: Well, it's a very, a very grand term for what we um for what we've actually done. I mean, all we have really done in that book is to say, look, there is the long term and there is the short term. And we have observed that effectiveness in each of those timescales is more or less diametrically the opposite. So mm-hmm. long-term, it's about mental availability, it's about reach, it's about emotions, and so on and so forth. The reverse of that is true for the short term. It's about targeting, it's about information that will nudge the purchase. Um, and so on and so forth. Um, and each of those two camps can point to hard data that demonstrates the proof of their cause. What we did was to try and say, look, there is a bigger view of how effectiveness works that enca- encapsulates both of these and explains why um, they both work together and why they can uh, uh, coexist indeed. And they support one another. You know, it's the as,
1: as Mark Ritson said, um, the most important word in the long and the short of it is and. You know, we, yeah. we, I think there's a long tradition of thinking about advertising, which is focusing on the long-term and the emotions and, you know, the feelings and all that stuff. And there's another direct response type model, uh, you know, performance marketing, direct response, call it what you will, which has a very different way of doing things. And basically what we said was, how do you combine these things together to, to get the best out of both really? Mm
0: the insights of the long and short of it have often been, I guess, misinterpreted or taken out of context, or many people who have engaged with work might have just seen a single PowerPoint slide. What are some of those key ideas that you think are really important to be clarified in today's marketing industry?
1: Well, um, the first one is simply the and. Um, So uh, we don't believe that it should all be long-term brand building. We don't believe that it's all just about emotion. Um, it's about balancing long-term and short-term and balancing emotions and messages and so forth. Um, that's one one thing uh, that I find quite infuriating because we get misquoted about that, um, uh, even by people who know our stuff quite well, I think. Mm. Um, I think um, there's, the 60-40 rule is another thing that is frustrating because um, while in the long and the short of it, we did say that overall, for a typical brand in our data set, the optimum balance was 60% brand, 40% activation. We then wrote a whole book, Effectiveness in Context, about how that balance, how that optimum balance, needs to be dialed up or down depending on other mm. factors. And mm. I suppose people, a lot of people have read the first book or yeah. know the so first book. So they've only and just they... caught up with it. I'm
2: sure to 10 short years. So it's going to be yeah. another 10 years before they read. And that, that's a really content.
0: essential part of the that's, conversation that's the, and the relevance of yeah. the yes, work, that's, isn't that's it? That's
2: the theory maturing, really. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the model uh, in, you know, beginning to take on board the realities of the marketing world. And hopefully others will refine it further in the years to come.
1: I encourage clients that I work with to try and measure that optimum mix for themselves, uh, you know, and there are ways of looking at that with econometrics, um, to know where they need to be Mm. for their brand in their category at their budget level. Uh, That's the next stage.
0: Any advice for marketers who are trying to make the pitch to their boards at the moment to take a more long-term view?
2: Well, I, th- I think one thing we would say is stop seeing it as just a long-term view. The, the reality of this is, and Les and I have always said this from the word go, for two things. First of all, um, what we call the long, which is the brand building thing, does have short-term effects. They're just not as powerful as performance marketing generally. But the second point the short is term. that it amplifies the effectiveness of your performance marketing. There are many, many case studies and the data is very strong on this, that if you, uh, alongside your performance marketing, start to strengthen the brand, your performance marketing results just accelerate ahead. Your CPA kind of data just starts to look much, much more healthy. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, I think that's an important side to it also if you're going to sell it in don't sell it in as simply the luxury of thinking about tomorrow it's just as much about thinking how we're going to trade tomorrow i mean today
1: this this is actually another misconception is sometimes people think when we say long-term effects we're talking about delayed effects that somehow you advertise now and then the sales come in you know sometime later what we talk about is the effects that last a long time. So if you advertise now, you get sales now, and you get sales tomorrow, and next week, and next month, and next year, and the year after. Yeah.
2: And there's another issue actually that, that le been talking about quite a bit, which is the one thing you only get when you take the long view and you do the brand building thing, is impacts on pricing. Um, and that's, you know, massively under, under, under examined in the marketing world. Um, you know, some researchers don't even believe in the pricing effect of, of advertising, but we know it's there because there are lots of case studies that it's been measured in. So I'm sure you'll want to add to that.
1: Um, well, I, it's, it's incredibly important. Um, I, I'd actually go, like to go slightly more general on that, which is it, the biggest single thing that marketers could do to convince finance people to release the money, is to talk about it in terms of money, rather than saying things like, you know, we've got to build awareness or whatever.
0: So it's speaking the language of the C-suite. Yeah.
1: And, and, And again, I think our work provides a framework for thinking about that. Because in a sense, those zigzaggy graphs that we talk about are about how... What the cash flow profile looks like, you know, how does the money come in and when when does it come in?
0: And that evidence base is essential in an inflationary environment, cost of living environment, where perhaps brands are thinking about reducing their spending, having that argument to make that's based in evidence, based in fact, is really, really important.
2: Reducing your brand support at a time when you're being forced to put your prices up is not (laughs) a good plan. And a lot
0: of brands are in that situation right now with inflation.
2: And, And there is the basis of a very strong argument to put To the C suite to say, look, we need to rethink this.
0: That's really good advice. I want to ask you, where do you think the biggest holes are now in our understanding of effectiveness as a marketing industry? And what do you think will be the defining opportunities in the next few years?
1: Um, I guess more research into the effects on price would be very helpful because I suspect they account for quite a large part of the long term profit and they're not as well studied as volume effects. I think that would be one. Mm.
2: I and mean, there there's another issue, um, which I'm increasingly kind of being drawn to, which is that when we talk about the long and the short, we're essentially talking about the top of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel. And many funnels are very short and the middle is probably not that important. But in some categories, there is a middle to this funnel. And the question arises, how do we handle that? How do we migrate people from, you know, enthusiasm for the brand at the top to making the purchase at the bottom? Um, uh, And I think there is more work to be done and potentially interesting research to be done at how you navigate through the funnel. Um, I don't think we've really looked at that or addressed that um, in the work that we've done. I don't think we have the data to do it.
0: Just while I've got you, I just want to ask, is, is there anything about the work that you've done that I haven't asked about that you think is really essential to share with our audience of listeners?
1: Oh, good Lord. (laughs) uh, Really
2: only just to reprise something that um, we did talk about in the the main event just now, which is that I think a lot of people have questioned the value of effectiveness databases, despite the fact that they are growing around Mm. the world and there's some very good findings coming out of a lot of those data. It's very consistent with what we found in the UK. I think it's time that we just reasserted the importance of effectiveness databases because they teach us about excellence. They teach us about how, how to be more than mediocre, and how to ensure that the investments we make in advertising don't just achieve average results, but they achieve exemplary results, which is where every business wants to be. It's where every marketer wants to be. It's where, you know, it's where, you know, names and reputations are made and where businesses ultimately achieve amazing success. So we need to get back to just reasserting the importance of these kinds of effectiveness databases.
1: Yeah, I suppose, and more generally, um sharing data and cooperating and sharing learning is a good thing and it's often hampered by concerns about confidentiality. I think businesses are overly obsessed with confidentiality. Um, you know, actually there's not that much to be gained from, uh, um, keeping all your figures close to your chest. Um, Um, Well, I'm I'm probably speaking out of turn, but it seems to me that uh, many, many firms, if you like, have an exaggerated um, idea of the importance of their own data and uh, keeping it confidential. If there was more sharing, I think the world would be a better place.
0: That's a great place to leave it. Uh, Les Bonette, Peterfield, thank you so much for joining us for the first time on The Walk podcast. It's been a real pleasure.
2: Thank you. Thanks a lot.
0: Most conversations around marketing effectiveness revolve around paid and earned media. Last year's IPA Fworks works Owned Channels Report presented new evidence of how owned channels can contribute to effectiveness. Fiona Blades presented today on how to integrate owned options into plans for paid and earned media and unlock the full potential of owned media investments. Fiona, thanks for joining us on The Walk Podcast. Thank you so much, Anna, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Well, this is a really exciting topic, and I know that even defining what owned media is can be really challenging, and owned media can definitely be in the eye of the beholder. Uh, Why is getting to that definition, that shared definition, really important on this topic?
3: Well, what
4: really surprised me was when I was interviewing the industry leaders, was that actually you can't define owned simply by the channel because actually it's the experience that somebody has rather than a channel. And if I can illustrate this, you can see that the same thing can actually be owned, paid or earned in different situations. So for example, say you're eating um, a packet of crisps. Um, You associate that taste with the actual brand as an owned channel. However, somebody else seeing you eat that packet of crisps They're having an earned experience because for them, they're looking at who's eating it, um, what that says, and it's a very different experience. So there are many nuances around it, but it was felt to be important that the IPA defined own channels just so that we can put them under the spotlight and make sure that they get fully respected and incorporated into measurement.
0: That's fantastic. And what are some of those key opportunities and challenges that marketers need to know about when integrating owned media?
4: I think the main thing is, let's not get hung up on terminology because, as I've said, something could be paid, owned or earned in in its evolving um, situation. I think the key is not to forget them. And so many of these experiences, I think, don't get measured and therefore they don't get really looked at sufficiently.
0: The prevalence of owned media is different across categories. So what is the case in one category or brand, may be different from another category or brand? What are some of those key differences across the different categories?
4: Well, let's take something like retail. Retail will have a high proportion of owned channels. Um, and that will be the physical stores, it will be the apps, the online shopping. So you'll have a lot of owned experiences within that. But if you take something like comparison websites, you've got a lot of paid advertising currently that are actually proportion proportionately coming through for customers when they're reporting experiences. And then if you look at something like electronics or you look at packaged goods, actually you've got quite a lot of earned experiences because people are seeing a TV in a hotel, in a public place, in somebody's home. Um, uh, And then you've got a lot of paid experiences, but many of them are retail. And I think that's something that's very important to have a look at and ensure that we are really incorporating all the benefits of retail experiences as
0: well. So there's a lot of different distinctions across categories and this very much is not a one size fits all approach.
4: No, it's not. And I think that's really important to remember, but just because your category has historically been very focused on paid, it doesn't mean that you can't create your own, you know, your own entities um, so I wouldn't be constrained
0: by that. I'd think creatively. Fantastic. Uh, measurement is such a hugely important part of the owned media channel conversation, as it is with any channel. Uh, what are some of the new insights emerging from the research on that specifically? Have you got any really good advice for marketers on that?
4: Well, I think one of the things that came through in speaking to the industry experts, particularly those that understand the modelling, was they were saying, at the moment, we had been very focused on our modeling using paid media. And by not incorporating owned and earned right from the start, we could be completely distorting the picture. So um, Rob Chandler at Ogilvy was saying that literally we could be providing the wrong advice if we aren't starting from that persp- perspective. So the stakes are high. This I think the stakes are very high, yes. Um, and in fact, we've got a we had a fairy tale that we talked about, which was talking about um, a woman giving her daughter an apple, um, which was all beautiful and rosy. But then, if you reveal the rest of the story, well, actually, it was uh, the the um, the stepmother, uh, and the uh, the Snow White story. And I think that's the thing that we have to be really aware of: that by not incorporating, we're causing issues. Um, and then just having recognized that. So that for me was a big insight. Then you've got, well, how do you do it? And there are real challenges culturally, which mean that we've got a long journey ahead and we've got to keep this story going. Because historically, we've often seen that customer experience is separated from brand and there are different models. The finance team might have a different model from the media team. And if there are things that are conflicting, It means that decisions literally just won't get made and it won't be helpful. And then there's orphaned measurement. So in matrix organizations, there isn't somebody always responsible for each of the elements in terms of measurement. So we need to think about roles and responsibilities. So I think there's a lot of cultural change that we need to
0: consider. That's an incredibly complex situation for brand marketers to navigate around the measurement. Tell us about the new measurement framework that you've developed to help marketers better understand how paid, owned and earned media interact, especially in relation to brand equity.
4: Well, One thing that we were launching today was the Experience Impact Score, and this is something that we've been working on for over a year. It's basically taking experiences that we've captured in real time and looking at the quantity and quality of those experiences, and then we've correlated them in terms of getting a model together with brand equity measures, so NPS, brand consideration, trust. And once we've got that score, so it's a score out of hundred. We can then start to see exactly which paid and owned and earned experiences are contributing to that. So for example, with retail banking, Barclays was the number one. It had a score of 72 and 36 of that 72 related to owned experiences. And when you could decompose that further, we could see that it was the app and it was the online banking that were the biggest impact followed by TV advertising. But when you looked at Halifax, actually, it was the paid TV that was the biggest impact, followed by app and then conversation. So I think that this new score will help clients to, first of all, see how they can improve their brand experiences, which will have an outcome in terms of their brand performance, and then exactly what is part of that uh, score. And that can then encourage debate about how to cost efficiently Um, improve your score through the experiences
0: that people are having with your brand. That sounds like an incredibly useful tool for marketers. Where can they get access to all of this fantastic content?
4: Well, we're creating tools for the IPA that will be on the IPA website. So um, those will be up in the next couple of weeks. We'll be having a look at some pie charts for the different categories. We'll be looking at lists that will not be exhaustive, but they'll be illustrative. Um, And then if anybody is interested in anything like the Experience Impact Score, I would be delighted to share any more information with anybody on that.
0: Well, that's the perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. Thank you, Anna. Finally, Pavan Morella, Strategy Director at Unilever, and Neelam Atadaria, Global Product Director at the GOAT Agency, they're joining us to talk about all things retail media, social commerce, and influencer marketing. Pavan and Neelam, welcome to the podcast.
3: Nice to be here. Happy
5: to be here.
0: According to Walk Data, retail media investment grew by 35% year-on-year for Q2 2023. That's really an extraordinary amount, isn't it? Pavan, what are the opportunities that brands are seeing in this space that are really driving that huge increase in spending?
5: I think retail media offers you the place where you can build your brands and convert to sale at the same place, and that's never been there before. And I think that it's by itself is leading to this massive opportunity that that we're seeing.
0: Neelam, do you have any perspective on that?
3: Yeah, I think in terms from a kind of influence and social commerce space, um, exactly as Pavan said, what we're working on is Ideally, how do you build brands on these spaces as well? And what a lot of the retail media players are doing is taking a lot of inspiration from the social players. So you can see places like Amazon adding in follow buttons, adding in posts, adding in live um, feeds, working very much with uh, influencers on their affiliate programs. And I think it's just a really interesting space, which is very new and has grown rapidly over the last couple of years. Social media
0: has been an essential tool in the marketer's arsenal for more than a decade now. How does it integrate with those emerging media opportunities and retail media from a brand building and a performance perspective?
3: Mm-hmm. Good question. I think in terms of what we're doing at the Go agency is very much figuring out how to integrate influencer content, which is really engaging, which you know moves the dial in terms of consumer opinions into different, I guess, channels that are typically outside of where you would see it. So something that we have been doing is working with one of the big retailers in order to create bespoke solutions where we can move influencer content exactly into their kind of retail media suite to kind of build the brands um, across their portfolio as well.
0: So influencer content is really evolving quickly, isn't it? (laughs) It's no longer about just paying an influencer to make a post about you. It's about integrating it across a variety of different channels.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think something that the Go agency has, um, which is that we're a part of Group M, So effectively, we have experts in connected TV and programmatic and paid, all of these different things. And it very much allows us to work out how to move really engaging content in all of, into all of these kind of channels in order to build kind of omni-channel um, strategies. Pavan,
0: how does Unilever use retail? What's your philosophy on the role it plays within your business and for your brands?
5: I think Unilever is a company that's been built on the foundation of very strong brands. And that continues to be our belief. And retail, like I said before, offers you a great opportunity to build it and convert to sale. Second, I think we're seeing this great convergence of content and commerce that's happening. So commerce players are becoming content players. Content players are becoming commerce players. So it offers us a very, very interesting opportunity and a new way of building our brand. So it's very, very important for us. It's obviously very different by the nature of the country, the category, and learning that nuance and playing to that nuance and not having a one-size-fits-all approach is the other thing that we look at.
0: What are some of the key lessons you've learned about regional nuance in this space?
5: I think every ecosystem is different. So we have a big market in India, in China, in the US, and all three, as you would expect, have evolved very, very differently. So I think first understanding the local nuances of what the platform ecosystem allows Second, understanding the cultural nuances of how consumers and shoppers shop, what they're buying. And third is the realities of your brands and categories you operate there. Uh, For example, in the US, it's much more about our beauty and well-being business. It's much more about our prestige business. It's much more about our health and well-being business. Whereas in India, it's much more about our personal wash, skin cleansing business. So it's very, very different in in what you look at and very different in how you build that from that lens.
0: And those are lessons that you can apply to the influencer and social space as well about regional relevancy and building from the ground up.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think for us and for me, from a product point of view, it's very much understanding what are the social platforms out there? What, who are the consumers out there? How do they engage? And what kind of influences work in those spaces as well?
0: What does all of this mean, stepping back a little bit, for the skills and the work of marketers? there's perhaps a specific idea of what a marketer needs to be able to do in order to be effective in their job. But given the speed of evolution that's changing so quickly, how can a marketer really be at the top of their game on these issues?
5: I think the first is really the core principles of marketing I don't think have changed. So a marketer does need to have a very strong understanding of what a consumer need really is. What is the consumer problem? What's the consumer need? And staying true to that as a foundation really helps. Second is understanding how your brand or product actually solves it. You know, what, what's your right product solution? What's your pricing? Is it right? What's your proposition? What's your positioning in the market? All those fundamentals haven't really changed. What's changed is how you engage with the consumer, how you engage with the shopper. So I think having a strong foundation, believing in the core principles of marketing that we've all been taught and we've brought up brought upon, and then understanding how things are changing. So in the olden days, a core marketer would do a lot more just of advertising and innovation whereas now their understanding of channels and ecosystems and platforms need to increase. So get out of your comfort zone and go and learn a little bit on that. So have a strong foundation and then learn the new things that probably a generation before of marketers were there didn't probably need to.
3: Neelam, what's your view on that? To be honest, I don't think the skills that marketers have necessarily changes. I think it's more about organizations and how do they bring um, skill sets from different sides. So you know programmatic paid social influencer all of this into into one and how to work cohesively t- in order to get the brand what they need at the end of the day because what we're seeing especially with like you know social commerce and retail media is that they have aspects in them which you know fall into different channels. And it's more about how do you create strategies which are across the board, which are omni-channel and serve both the brand and the consumer in the right way.
0: Obviously, you know, there's going to be differences here in how you implement that for really big brands such as Unilever and you're a massive company versus a tiny startup thinking about retail. What's your advice to marketers for big versus small about how to get the most out of these channels? Mm
3: -hmm. Sure. I think in terms of for marketers, in, for big marketers specifically, when I think about social commerce, it's mainly taking form on TikTok, if we're being honest. Um, TikTok shop, which if they nail, I think is going to have massive impacts um, in terms of how we shop. And I think for big brands specifically, my big advice would be learn how to be slightly more agile because the lifespan of a sound or a trend or something on TikTok is probably, you know, a couple hours max. And the big challenge is how do you get into that? How do you make sure that people remember your brand? Because, you know, all your competitors that are smaller are going to create a video, push it out in like an hour. and Simply then,
0: because there's less bureaucracy. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's exactly that. How How can you be more agile? And I guess adapt yourselves to what success looks like in these platforms as well. Pavan, what do you think?
5: I think that I think Neelam makes a very, very big point. I think for big brands, it's about avoiding the bureaucracy, getting more agile. But also, I think it's about big brands understanding their core strengths. It's for them to lean into it. That fact that their size does matter, they have the resources, and to actually do things that are right for each platform in a bespoke way. I think that, that that's the, the opportunity they have. Second, I think for big brands, the real idea of being agile also comes with being responsible. So, Because big brands by nature are probably spent across many countries, many continents, many markets, channels. So how do you really be agile but also do it in a responsible way that stays true to your brand ethos uh, in everything that you actually do? And for small brands, as Neelam has said, it's a great opportunity to actually do something at a much more level playing field. So if if you have a new launch coming up, if you have a new innovation coming up, this offers you that opportunity to do something that you probably would not have had in a much more traditional environment of sorts.
0: I'm interested in what you see as the major challenges and opportunities in your respective spaces over the next 12 months. If if you were boi- able to boil it down to one of those each, what would you what would you think? Neelam, do you want to start?
3: Oh, good question. <laughs> um... I think it goes back to something that I mentioned earlier, which is working out how to work cohesively um, in order to get our brands and customers what they need, especially when we embark on all of these new kind of technologies that are coming into the market as well, especially in terms of, you know, TikTok shop, social commerce, and then retail media and how social influences plays into that as well. Pavan, any final thoughts?
5: I think for us, it's, you know, we live in a very interesting time of infinite ideas, infinite opportunities, but very finite budgets and very finite time constraints. So how do you actually find the balance between this finite and infinite? I think we'll be the differentiator between a marketer and a brand that succeeds and that one that doesn't. So let's see.
0: Sound insights there. That's where we'll leave it. Pavan and Neelam, thank you so much for joining us on The Walk Podcast today. Thank you very Thank you very us. much. That's all we have time for on The Walk podcast today, coming to you from the IPA's Fworks works event in London. Thanks to Les and Peter, Pavana Neelam and Fiona. If you're interested in accessing the F-Works sessions and the speaker slides, then you can visit www.ipa.co.uk to purchase tickets for on-demand access. We'll be back again tomorrow in discussion with more industry stalwarts and effectiveness experts at F-Works. If you haven't done so already, you may want to also subscribe to The Walk podcast so you don't miss another episode. Thank you for listening.